Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Jason Palmer, science correspondent, and joining me are my fellow science correspondent, Tim Cross, and Paul Markilli, our innovation editor. In this episode, we'll be chatting about supersonic air-breathing engines and a spacecraft's close encounter with one of the moons of Saturn. Um, first up, though, Paul, uh, you're writing about the, the Sabre engine, which I feel like I've heard about before. Tell me what this thing is. Yes, this project goes back to something called HOTL for Horizontal Takeoff and Landing, which was a British space plane project that began uh, in 1982, led by um, an engineer, Alan Bond, who worked for Rolls-Royce. Now, the money ran out for this in 1989, but Mr. Bond and two of his fellow Rolls-Royce engineers set up a company called Reaction Engines to keep the whole thing going. And that's carried on doggedly over the years. And this week, BAE Systems bought 20% of reaction engines for £20 million. And that's been a big vote of confidence, which suggesting that this novel propulsion system, which is a hybrid rocket-come-jet engine, may finally be turning into reality. Well, let, let's pick that apart a little bit. How does this thing work? Why is it better than both a rocket or, or a jet? Well, at the moment, there are two different sorts of engine. Uh, one's fine for flying an aeroplane around in the atmosphere because it takes its oxygen from the atmosphere. But a rocket needs to get above the atmosphere, so it has to carry its oxygen with it, which makes rockets quite inefficient and very heavy. If you could combine the two, you'd have a single-stage engine system that could take the air from the atmosphere as it goes up in that stage and then turn into a rocket using onboard hydrogen and oxygen to get into orbit. So a single-stage engine has a lot of attractions, and then you really could build a genuinely uh, reusable spacecraft, unlike the shuttle. And uh, reaction engines have a design for that aircraft, uh, which they call Skylon. And that would, in fact, be able to fly at Mach 5, five times the speed of sound through the atmosphere, breathing in air. And then it switches into rocket mode using uh, onboard um, oxygen to uh, enter into low Earth orbit where it can distribute satellites. And when it's done, it glides back to Earth. Tim, you wanted to come in on this? So in other words, it sounds like that sort of old space engineer's dream of a single plane that sits on the runway and you get into it and it flies all the way up to orbit by itself without any external payload or anything and then comes straight back down again. This is something, you know, we've been wanting that since the 1950s. Exactly. That's the idea. I mean, at the moment, um, this additional money and some grant money and some um, very favorable um, technology audits of of this concept means that we may, by 2020, actually get one of these engines operating operating on the ground as a test facility. So it's still a decade away before one actually flies. But it was uh, an idea that many were sceptical of, but uh, not so much now. 
Well, in a, in a nutshell, though, as you say, this has been going for decades now, the, the story that kind of keeps coming back. What's what's different now? What what breakthrough has, has made this more of a serious proposition and, and values the company at something like 100 million quid? Well, the main thing is that at five times the speed of sound, the oncoming air uh, coming to the engine is heated to 1,000 degrees by friction, and that has to be cooled, and rapidly so. And they use a basically the world's fastest refrigerator to do that with some amazing uh, technology that in uh, – a fraction of the second cools that air to minus 150 degrees centigrade, at which point it can be compressed and used in the uh, jet engine phase of the flight. Okay, so here's the real question after we've been waiting all this time. How soon can I get into my supersonic, my hypersonic plane and, and get halfway around the world in a couple of hours? That could be further away, but supersonic travel is rather nice. Uh, we once borrowed a Concorde and shot up to Scotland, and it took a couple of minutes. It was uh, really <laughs> it cool. It took a couple um, of minutes. This was yeah. back in the 1990s when the advertising dollars were flying. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's right, and that's pre-health uh, and safety as well, so which uh, made these things possible. But, yeah, it would make that much more doable. Um, London to Sydney in uh, four hours, 40 minutes uh, – would be pretty useful. You still have some of the old problems that dog Concord that you might have to do that over water because although the sonic boom could be reduced, it may not be eliminated completely. But the big problem, as it was with Concord, is making that a commercial reality. Um, so we're some way from seeing that, but this is the sort of engine that could make that possible. The whole thing is a sort of great blast from the past because you know, Alan Bond's this, he's this figure from sort of back when Britain actually had a space program in any kind of meaningful sense. And you know, the other thing he's known for is drawing up the plans for a giant fusion-powered interstellar space probe that would spend 50 years blasting its way to Barnard Star. And he's a real sort of backroom, hard-working, diligent, slightly crazy guy in a shed sort of figure. It's nice to see this all coming off for him now. Yeah, it's a good day for British inventors. Thanks for that, Paul. Um, Tim, now over to you as our, dare, dare I say it, we keep coming back to stories like this recently as our potential for life elsewhere in the cosmos correspondent. This podcast <laughs> certainly does seem to love aliens. Right. This week, it's um, pictures from the Cassini spacecraft, which I've seen and which are absolutely stunning. Mm. Um, but it's not the first time that Cassini has scooped down the plumes, has it? No, it's not. So um, Cassini, just to back up a bit, is a probe that's currently orbiting Saturn. Saturn has dozens of moons and Cassini gets to fly past some of them, you know, at some time, depending on its on its orbit. Um, and probably the most interesting moon at the moment is one called Enceladus. And this is the one that it has been visiting recently. Uh, and the reason Enceladus is interesting is it, it's a big ball of ice. And in the last maybe decade, decade and a half, it was thought that this thing might have a big water ocean locked under the ice. And that's gone from sort of speculation to being probable to being pretty much confirmed. And it's suddenly, you know, vaulted this place right up the rankings as one of the places in the solar system where, where the chances of finding life are as good as they're going to get. Which is, of, of course, what's drawn your attention. <laughs> like I said, I love me some aliens. I, I was all set to talk about cancer-curing viruses, but you guys in, insisted on the aliens. No, 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 always with the aliens. So tell me what it's seen this time. I mean, this is just a, a closer pass this time around. Is that right? Well, so besides the pretty pictures, which really are, like, stunning, it's amazing the kind of cameras you can pack onto space probes these days. The or main, 15 years ago when they set off. Well, exactly. The main scientific goal was to try and check out some of the composition of this ocean because one of the things about Enceladus and one of the big giveaways is that bits of that ocean spew into space from near the moon's south pole. So there's literally a big geyser of water just spewing into into the void from the, the bottom of this moon. And we now think, actually, that that's the source of one of the rings that goes around Saturn itself. It's all just frozen 
bits and bobs from this this sort of big water ocean. They've flown through it before, uh, and this is what really um, made people excited about the possibility for life there, because when they did, they found it wasn't just water. Uh, it was full of all kinds of organic compounds, you know, the sort of complex chemicals that might be the precursors to life. And the orbital mechanics work out in such a way that they've been able to do it again. And so they're going to try and take an even bigger, better sample and work out, you know, exactly what is in this ocean besides the water. And so what do we know? What do we know? What do we know? Well, so the flyby has only just happened. It happened last week. So it'll take a while for the actual results to filter out. You can see the pictures already, but it'll take a while for them to do the analysis. But what makes people so interested is that this place seems to have all the ingredients you need. So water, as far as we can tell, seems to be vital for life because of all its various weird chemical properties and its abilities as a solvent and stuff. This place has an awful lot of water, probably, I mean, no one knows for sure, but one estimate is maybe about as much as there is in, in Lake Superior. It has lots of other complex chemicals floating around in the water, which suggests that the bottom of the ocean is probably in contact with the, the sort of rocky core of the planet. And it's, sorry, the moon, rather. It's, it's not a planet. Leaching all sorts of useful minerals um, out into the water. And it seems to have a source of energy, microbes, bacteria. Yeah, I'm little, seeing little where this is going. So we've got, we've got water. We've got some uh, handy organic-looking chemicals. We have a source of energy. This is all very compelling stuff. And it's, it's even more compelling because the consensus, you know, to the extent that there is a consensus, the, the best guess for how life got started on Earth now is probably at the bottom of a big ocean in a, a hydrothermal vent with a whole load of very warm, very mineral-rich water. And it seems like, you know, exactly these conditions might be present on the moon. So the obvious question then is is whether or not a mission will go to to answer this sort of explicitly. Are there any missions planned? I've heard of the Enceladus Life Finder. Has that got any hope of, of taking off? Yeah, so the, the ELF, in other words. We don't know at the moment. It's only just been submitted. So NASA has this big, long bureaucratic process where you, you put sort of 20 mission proposals in one end and like two or three trickle out the other end years and years later. There is a mission planned to go to Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter, which, like Enceladus, we think probably also has uh, an ocean under the surface, although we don't know quite as much about that as, as, as we do about Enceladus. And some people now are saying, well, maybe that's the wrong target. Maybe we should be going to Enceladus instead. But as you say, there is this mission that's just been entered into the vast bureaucratic moor. And if we're really lucky, we might get to see both places. I seem to remember, Tim, and talking to somebody who was going to go to one of these moons and drill a hole and drop something through and let it swim around like a marine drone and send back some information. Yeah, so th- this is the sort of money no object if we live in some unlimited funding kind of world. People have said, you know, why don't we drop a lander onto the surface of this thing, drill a hole through the ice, plop a little submarine in and have it swim around. Sounds great in principle. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds great in principle until you, you have to go to the NASA administrator with your, with your budget estimate. On the other hand, NASA's not the only game in town anymore. So Cassini itself is part funded by the Europeans. Um, and of course, we've got China and most famously India wanting to, to sort of build up their space programs. India just sent a probe to the moon for what NASA probably spends on ballpoint pens in a year. And even the Europa probe is, isn't due to launch until probably the mid 2020s. So um, even if NASA doesn't do it, and to be honest, I, I think they probably will, uh, it's not inconceivable that somebody else might jump at the chance because it's a, it's a really tempting target. And we do now, of course, have an engine that would get us there. There you go. S- stick one in the back of your Skylon and, and off you go. Right, well, sounds like that's solved. Then I'll, I'll stay here while you two jet off as if uh, on, a, on a Concorde to Scotland. Um, thank you for that, Tim, and, and thanks, Paul. But that's all we have time for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. You can read more about Sabre Engines in the upcoming issue of The Economist. And for more science and tech more generally, visit us at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. <music> 
Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.